Al Jazeera podcast. America has shown unwavering support for Israel's war on Gaza. Critics say this highlights its double standards and could be a turning point in the world order. Is the US strategy short-sighted? What damage could the war inflict on America's global standing? I'm James Bays, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss this further. In Boston, Rami Khoury, Issam Fariz Institute Distinguished Fellow at the American University of Beirut. Rami is also the author of A US Pivot Away from the Middle East Fact or Fiction. In London, Samuel Romani, an Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and a military and geopolitical analyst. And in Washington, D.C., James Jeffrey, a former U.S. ambassador to Iraq and Turkey and chairperson of the Middle East programme at the Wilson Centre. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today on the Inside Story programme. We just heard President Biden there. Let me just remind you what he said. We are facing an inflection point in history, one of the moments where the decisions we make today are going to determine the future for decades to come. He was speaking four weeks ago on October the 20th. Um, Ambassador Jeffrey, I'm going to call you James from now on. Um, do you agree with him? I do. Why? Uh... The core American role in the world since 1947-48, and we have had many different roles, is to maintain a global collective security system to ensure that major global actors do not start snuffing out states, destroying, or to use Hamas's language, extinguish other nation states, because that puts us down the road to World War I and World War II. That is the most important issue for U.S. foreign policy. Um, Joe Biden sees it, and he's absolutely right. OK, Rami Khoury, that was two weeks into the war. We're now six weeks into the war. Rather, a lot has changed. The death toll in Gaza has risen dramatically. It's not even being counted anymore. Israel has besieged hospitals and, raised, ra and raided the biggest one. Um, Israel has also displaced two-thirds of Gaza's population. And the UN is now saying there's the risk of starvation and chronic disease. Do you think Biden now finds himself on the wrong side of history? I think he probably does. I don't, I don't think Biden or American leaders really understand history. That's the real problem. They've had so little of it themselves in terms of global engagements other than uh, military engagements uh, and trade. And so there's a real problem in how the United States deals with the world. I've, <clears throat> I've used the phrase that the U.S. deals with the world as markets or targets, markets for trade and targets to attack or to sanction. Um, and the, the record of the United States uh, since World War II uh, has not been uh, very good in terms of using its military in uh, Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and other places. So, uh, the, and, and it supports these autocratic countries all over the third world. So instead of preserving the states, as, as Ambassador Jeffrey said, the United States is actually helping autocratic regimes uh, hollow their states from within. If you look at places uh, like Egypt and, and other places around the world that the U.S. supports uh, severely. And we see the consequences of its all-out support for Israel, which is expanding tension and, and warfare, and, and the U.S. sending huge amounts of military hardware to, to the region. So there's a real problem in how the U.S. 
analyzes and engages with uh, the world. Samuel, that speech in the Oval Office was also about the war in Ukraine. You've written the book, Putin's War on Ukraine. You're a chronicler of the last 20 months in Ukraine. We'll get to all the detail of that in a minute. But on the, the, the inflection point in history, do you agree with Biden? Well, I think that obviously Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 was an inflection point in modern European history. It was the most uh, brazen uh, assault on the sovereignty of a European state since the end of the Second World War. And Russia has also described it as an inflection point for the broader global order. When you look at the statements from Sergei Lavrov or Dmitry Medvedev, you very often see that this invasion of Ukraine is the start of a challenge to the U.S.-led global order and, and the start of a new multipolar order led by Russia and China, but also empowering the broader global South. And Biden, I think, is touching upon the fact that now sovereignty is being breached in a more flagrant fashion, and that's definitely a problem for the post-Cold War order. But there are obviously also American double standards, as Rami pointed out, that make uh, his message, even though accurate on the sovereignty question, a bit hard for many across the world to palate. James, if I can ask you about the bombardment of Gaza and the scale of the bombardment of Gaza, among the high-level jobs that you have held um, in the US system, you were the US Special Representative for Syria and the uh, presidential envoy for the Global Coalition to counter the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, uh, ISIS, ISIL. Um, and I know you took up those jobs after the Battle of Raqqa, but if we compare what happened in Raqqa to what happened um, in, in um, Gaza, um, there were 1,600 civilians killed in the US coalition air and artillery strikes. Now, I know those aren't US figures, they're figures from Amnesty International and from air wars, but even if you take those figures, perhaps you dispute them, that means that Israel has killed 10 times that number in just six weeks, and the, the, the Raqqa campaign went on for 11 months. Uh, that's correct. And there are reasons for it. I would also say a better example, because it's the biggest city, was Mosul, which I also um, uh, have looked at closely in 2016, 2017, where there were some 10,000 civilian casualties. Uh, first of all, uh, Israel did not have the time that we had in 2016, 17, or 2018 and beyond uh, with the Islamic State. It's mobilized, it's in part of its entire workforce. It is facing possible escalation uh, in the north, possibly from Iran. And so it moved in in a very, very rapid way. That, the nature of Gaza, and I've been there, I've seen no place in the world that is more crowded with more people, and Hamas's uh, true policy of using uh, civilians as human shields, uh, putting their uh, installations inside these areas. Uh, has led to these high casualties. Uh, what the administration uh, is trying to do is to minimize these, particularly now that the Israelis have seized control of most of the north of uh, uh, Gaza. But do you think these high casualties are too high? Are you uneasy about them, James? Anybody who is not uneasy about casualties, particularly civilian casualties, uh, is not, you know, uh, looking at this in a humane way. Uh, but I also look at what are the alternatives. I also know if we're going to talk about casualties, because I was involved in most of these wars, uh, some million people killed in Iraq, Syria, uh, Yemen uh, since 2003. 
uh, and 15 million displaced. Uh, this is an extremely dangerous region, or it has been for the last 20 years, uh, and uh, it requires, as soon as possible, uh, much more stabilization, much more security than we have right now. But, of course, the U.S. prides itself on respecting the rules-based international order, doesn't it, Rami? And some of those central rules are the rules of war, the Geneva Conventions. Um, isn't Israel, with its indiscriminate bombing, breaking those most fundamental of rules? Yes, it's, clearly it is. And many respected international groups, uh, independent, credible groups, have said so. And, and people on the Arab side have broken these rules as well, and people in Turkey and everywhere. Uh, so this is very, uh, very common. <clears throat> the problem is that these uh, rules were made by victorious countries after World War I and World War II, and uh, they really uh, are not followed very, uh, very uh, diligently. Uh, Ambassador James was correct to say that, you know, in the last uh, 20 years, we've had all these really messy situations in the region. But I would argue that in the last, the re one of the reasons for this is for the last 200 years since Napoleon, we've had almost nonstop Western military direct intervention uh, or manipulation uh, of states uh, and sovereignties, uh, economic systems, military ties, and uh, leaderships uh, in the, throughout the whole uh, Middle East. So there's a real serious problem in the uh, integrity and the uh, efficacy of statehood and sovereignty and citizenship across most of the Arab countries and other countries uh, in the Middle East, and foreign direct military involvement is one of the reasons uh, for this, as well as uh, uh, local reasons, and particularly the continuation of 100 years of Zionist expansionism, settlement, uh, settler colonial apartheid expansion, which has reached the peak now in Israel's policies, the government policies, not freelance roads, the government's policies in Gaza and in the, in the West Bank. So the, at some point, the world has to uh, stop uh, issuing platitudes and really get serious. Uh, if you want stability and peace, you have to do what happened in Northern Ireland uh, and in uh, Southern Africa and a few other places where tough decisions were made to change existing patterns and policies and bring about real uh, security and peace because it was based on justice for all. There's no sign of that in the, in the region, and there's certainly no sign of it in the last 30, 40 years of the United States monopolizing Arab-Israeli peacemaking. And it would be a catastrophe if the U.S. again led the search for a permanent resolution after the fighting uh, in Gaza and the West Bank, by the way, uh, after it stops. James, I saw you smile or laugh um, when Rami was talking about settler colonialism. Why? Um, uh, for the last 200 years, uh, Western military powers have moved into the entirety of the North and South America, all of South uh, 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 Sub-Saharan Africa, and entirely of East Asia, except for part of China. And uh, that's a reality all around the world, not just in the Middle East. Nowhere else do we see anything, I underline anything like the carnage we have seen in the Middle East. Um, not just the last 20 years, but think of the 1980s with the Iran-Iraq war, with the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan and other conflicts. It is an extremely unstable uh, region whose political leadership and uh, possibly outside uh, intervention uh, is not uh, worthy of the people who are suffering uh, uniquely in this region. 
Now, I've had on this programme in the last six weeks, we don't have an international lawyer here, but I've had one on many, many days, and I haven't yet found one who doesn't believe that Israel is probably breaking international humanitarian law, in other words, committing war crimes. Samuel, you're there in London. Are the US's allies getting uncomfortable about this? Well, I think that we're starting to notice, obviously, some uh, efforts to distance uh, from U.S. policy towards Israel, the unconditional support. I think early on within the European Union, there were a few voices like Ireland and Spain who are really calling for an immediate ceasefire or really challenging Israel's conduct in Gaza. And now we're seeing more countries follow that way. I think Emmanuel Macron's uh, vote against the United States in the United Nations General Assembly over the Arab peace resolution that was sponsored by Jordan, and then uh, comments about the killing of children and uh, women is suggestive of that rift. Even in Britain itself, I think the dismissal of Suella Braverman was largely also linked to this kind of unconditional support for, for Israel being challenged uh, to some degree. And Britain has also been a bit more cautious, certainly voting against the U.S. on the settlement issue, abstaining on other resolutions. So there definitely is frictions within the uh, Western alliance bloc, but those frictions really haven't boiled over. There's only a small number of states, like Spain and Ireland, that are still calling for a ceasefire within the collective West. Now, Biden, as commander-in-chief, has sent an armada to the region. By my count, it's two aircraft carriers, at least 10 warships, a nuclear submarine, a detachment of marines and numerous fighter aircraft. But if he's trying to look strong, the problem is that every time he says something to Israel, Israel is not listening on humanitarian pauses, on bringing more aid in, on bringing fuel in. Now, finally, they're going to allow a little bit of fuel on what happens at the end of this, bringing the Palestinian Authority in. Would you agree, Rami? Yeah, I think there's a real dilemma for the United States that it is the only country that Israel really trusts. Therefore, it has to be centrally involved in any kind of effort for peacemaking that might be revived. But the dilemma is that it's also the major backer of the, uh, of the barbarian policies that Israel, the medieval siege and destruction policies, starvation, that Israel is now uh, implementing, and, and the settler colonial apartheid system that Zionism introduced into this region starting in the late 1880s and continues today. You see it in the West Bank and in Gaza. It's an extraordinary legacy of nonstop uh, violence designed to oust the Palestinian indigenous Palestinians, who were 93, 94% of the population 100 years ago in Palestine. And, and the Israeli Zionist Israeli aim is to have a Jewish state. They succeeded. They created the Jewish majority state, but they haven't stopped. And this is one of the, the reasons that people in the Middle East, but also really most of the third world, most of the South, uh, don't believe or trust the United States when it says we want a two-state solution. I wish the U.S. really did work for a, a genuinely equitable uh, two-state resolution of the conflict that addresses the core needs of both sides. We've offered, the Arab world has offered that many times in peace agreements, peace offers. Uh, but the U.S. has a real problem. It it's, it's, it's can't be a peacemaker if it's the principal uh, backer of the war maker. Your views on that, James? Uh, I, he certainly has a point with this uh, Israeli government. Uh, it is hard to imagine a government that has views more different than those of Joe Biden. But I would say that uh, that's this government, there's a history to this. Uh, the United States did support very strongly the Oslo Accords, and uh, President Bill Clinton put much of his presidency 
on the table to try to get one. Uh, Clinton's view, and he has repeated it uh, many times, is that uh, there was a deal in 2000, Yasser Arafat turned it down. Well, the speech that we spoke about at the beginning of the program four weeks ago in the Oval Office wasn't just about the war in Gaza. It was also about the war in Ukraine. And you could argue that this is President Zelensky's uh, worst nightmare, what we've uh, seen right now. Listen to what he said in a recent interview. Of course, Russia understands that now when focus from Ukraine taking off and when this focus to the Middle East and when they try to divide the world in this crisis, israel uh, Palestine crisis, and of course, of course, Russia is very happy with this war. So what they want? They just want to divide the world. So President Zelensky there, Samuel, this is his worst nightmare, isn't it? The attention's gone away. That means that the money and the weapons probably aren't going to come uh, in the same numbers. Well, I think it's more of a political rather than national military necessity construct. In fact, Biden has repeatedly said that the United States is the most powerful country in the world. It's the only superpower. It can arm both uh, Israel and Ukraine at once. But in practice, being so actively involved in two wars and also upgrading the U.S. industrial machinery to something of a war footing is very, very difficult to do in an election year. And we're already seeing the outcomes of that leading to a squeeze on supplies to Ukraine. Congress has admitted that Congress holding up the Ukraine-Israel aid bill has led to the White House having to admit that there's going to be smaller aid packages coming forward and that aid will be finite. And we're also seeing problems with the delivery of artillery shells, especially because Israel has asked for and appears to have gotten the 57,155 mm shells going their way, and those shells are directly diverted from Ukraine to the Israelis. So there is a significant uh, drawdown of support at a time when Ukraine's counteroffensive has stalled and the Russians are escalating offensive operations in Avdivka. So Zelensky's very worried. James, I mean, we'll come back to the allegations of double standards now, I think, because Biden has called what Russia's doing a genocide. He's condemned attacks on hospitals by Russia. He's condemned bombings of civilians by Russia. And he's condemned the forced transfer of civilians by Russia. People will be asking, why is Gaza different? Uh, people should, and the fault is Joe Biden. Uh, much as I like him and enjoyed working for him, uh, he gets too effusive. I was a thousand percent behind everything he has done, the international community has done for Ukraine, but I, and I know the Russians well from Syria and elsewhere, but I was very unhappy when we're using such language, war criminal and uh, uh, genocide against the Russians, because I knew this would come back and haunt us. Uh, this is aggression, as spelled out in the Nuremberg trials against. Uh, the state of Ukraine, just like uh, what we had on the 7th of October, was aggression against the state of Israel. Both purposes were to wipe out those states. That's the issue. Uh, I was nervous about genocide then. I remain nervous about genocide being used in the context of uh, uh, Israel. Let's look at Russia's position on global events, Rami. Um, of course, it's not any longer a superpower, but perhaps it's been buoyed by the war in Gaza. It seems to have thrown aside its careful diplomacy with Israel for years and taken quite a strong position on this war. Um, you could say there are accusations of hypocrisy there as well. 
Oh, absolutely. Most big powers are professional hypocrites. It's, it comes with the DNA of uh, political leadership in the Western world and probably in, in the South as well. This is normal. Uh, but so I don't think we should worry about what people say and if it contradicts what they do. That This applies to, uh, to everybody. Uh, I think the bigger question here, and this is what the U.S. and Biden are really having to confront, and they're not confronting it, uh, is is the United States mandated by anybody to be the uh, the maintainer of the global order? You said in the beginning the U.S. or I think uh, uh, Jim said that the U.S. wants to maintain the post World War II order. It's it's true that the U.S. probably wants to do that, but nobody has given it that mandate. The U.N. has the mandate to do that, and the United States is facing and Biden is facing a real serious problem which is going to hurt more than anything else, which is his Democratic Party is fracturing. And it's fracturing along age lines, generational lines. The young people are wildly against what is happening in, in, in Palestine and Gaza and the West Bank with direct American support. <clears throat> and the, uh, the pressures are going to impact the, Demo the Democratic parties and Biden's electoral fortunes uh, in the elections likely uh, next year if things don't change. So we have domestic pressures, we have international pressures, and I don't think the United States leadership uh, has the ability uh, uh, to address these issues in any uh, coherent way. It'll it'll continue to bring in the Navy and the, and the Air Force and send in the Special Forces and, and talk in uh, apocalyptic ways about its uh, God-given mission to, uh, so to support the uh, good people uh, in the world. So th this this has very little credibility anymore, but the world can't do much about it when the United States uses its power uh, the way it does. So we need a much more sophisticated global coalition of like-minded, decent countries. And the U.S. is a decent country, except when it comes to uh, its foreign policy, which is military-based and supporting autocrats. But we need a better international mechanism uh, to uh, achieve uh, global order, uh, and that can only be based on social justice and equal rights for all parties. And this is not what uh, Israel and Zionism are about, and this is not what the United States has supported in practice. And words, of course, they support it. In practice, okay. they don't. Uh, James, I don't want to... I'm coming to it right at the end, but I don't want to leave China out of this discussion. It is the other major power in the world. How do you think China sees the war on Gaza, because traditionally it's not been its sphere of influence, but we have seen them involved in the region, particularly with regard uh, to that rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, briefly, China wants stability in the region. It's not ready to play a big military or diplomatic role, and it needs the region's hydrocarbons. But more importantly, and this gets to everything we've been hearing, a look what's happened in the last few days. China has met with President Biden. Uh, the Chinese caved on an important American demand, which is military uh, communications. But even more importantly, for the first time in eight years, China several weeks ago agreed to talk about ballistic nuclear missiles with the United States. Why? Because what China sees is if the United States is going to back Ukraine, if it's going to back uh, Israel, it will also back Taiwan. This is a serious international player. We take it seriously. So when I hear about the global south and us losing international opinion, I say, how is China treating us now? They're treating us like a very serious, important uh, partner. 
Rami, finally to you, um, given their very important partner, do you think China and the other world powers are going to let, at the end of this conflict, the US run the show as they have done in the past? Yes, the two US is talking about a two-state solution, but it's sort of abandoned the idea of a two-state solution and went round the Palestinians in recent years. Yeah, of course. And everything the U.S. has done in terms of its policies to Israel and the Palestinians uh, in the region in the last 20 years has uh, allowed the two-state solution to die away uh, under the weight of Israeli nonstop uh, settlements. Uh, but the the world, China and others, are going to try to play a more constructive role if they can. China already has done things between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia and other things in the region. Uh, but the reality is that nothing will happen in Arab-Israeli diplomacy without the U.S. being somewhere near the center of it, because they're the only people the Israelis trust. And this is this is one of the problems <clears throat> we have. So I think there has to be a more serious search for a multilateral approach that allows the U.S. to maintain a central role, but tempers its negative uh, attitudes and, and war-making and pro-Israeli sentiments uh, tempers those so that both the Arabs and the Israelis can actually achieve equal rights. And this is what really we have to look for everywhere um, in the world. And this can only happen with an international mandate. It can't be a unilateral decision by the U.S. saying we want to do this. So I, I would look for more activism by global powers to see what they can do. Thank you, Rami, very much. And thanks to all our panelists for joining us today. Rami Khoury, Samuel Romani and Ambassador James Jeffrey. This episode was produced by Diana Karim, Katia Lopez-Hodiyan, Ablakar and Gemma Harris. Studio Sam was by Deepak Pushkaran. The programme was edited by Andre Westeisen, Zaina Bada and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening and tune in on Sunday for our next episode. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.